What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Kathy Wood is the founder, CEO, and CIO at ARK Invest. Prior to this, she spent 12 years at Alliance Bernstein as Chief Investment Officer of Global Thematic Strategies, where she managed over $5 billion. In this conversation, we discuss coronavirus, the economic implications of monetary policy decisions, how innovation gains market share during times of crisis, how Kathy is thinking about Square and Tesla, and then she explains her latest views on Bitcoin. I really enjoyed this conversation, and Kathy is one of the best. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our two sponsors. The first is Taxbit. They make paying your taxes super simple. Taxbit automates your cryptocurrency taxes, enabling you to effortlessly track, calculate, and report your transactions. You can easily connect your exchanges to securely sync your transactions and run them through Taxbit's tax engine. Generate your completed tax forms with a single click. The company was founded by tax attorneys and CPAs. Taxbit is the most trusted cryptocurrency tax solution. Get 10% off your tax plan today with a free trial by going to taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. Again, taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. The next sponsor is Blockset. They're a new company and a new advertiser. Blockset is built by BRD or Bread. If you're building in the blockchain space, you got to know them. Their goal is to enable the next wave of developers and business leaders to build amazing applications. Blockset offers accessible data from all the major chains through a single, easy-to-use API. It acts as your hosted blockchain infrastructure, and it ultimately enables high-quality apps to be built at a fraction of the cost, in a fraction of the time. So go sign up for a free developer account at Blockset.com and start building today. Blockset is built by BRD, or Bread, the first wallet in the App Store from 2014 and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Thanks to Blockset, we can all build with crypto assets at light speed using their unified API that is data from all the major chains. See how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. Go build with Blockset. All right, let's get into this episode with Kathy. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I have Kathy here with us. Uh, this is her second appearance on the podcast. Uh, I don't ever admit this usually, but she, her first conversation with me was my favorite episode ever. And when I told people that uh, she was coming back on, uh, many people were tweeting at me saying that this was uh, their favorite episode as well. So no pressure. We'll see if we can do it again. <laughs> All right. Um, awesome. Listen, you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, this is not your first rodeo, uh, not your first economic crisis. Uh, let's just start with, given the historical context and all the experience you have, like what is going on now and should people be worried or not? Right. Um, well, thank you, Pom, very much for uh, your kind words and for inviting me back. Um, yes, I have been in the business for more than 40 years. I started when I was in college. And so I've been through 10 crises, if you include recessions. And um, this appears to me to be like uh, 
two of them. Uh, uh, and the two were shocks, uh, shocks to the system, unexpected, sudden. Uh, the first one was when portfolio insurance failed in October of uh, 87 and created Black Monday. Uh, that's when the stock market dropped by almost 25% in one day. Uh, that didn't happen this time around. And uh, quite simply, those who thought they could get out of the market because they were insured, um, uh, they, that insurance failed. And so it caused all kinds of concerns about systemic effects and so forth. Uh, instead, you know, what happened was the people who had bought portfolio insurance were the losers. This was a shock. People were waiting around thinking, okay, is this going to have reverberations beyond this? And as it turned out, it didn't. So forces in motion before that shock continued in motion. The 80s was a great bull market, and that continued. Uh, the second time, uh, many people will think it's 0809. No, it's not. That was a true financial crisis meltdown. This is a shock. It's a healthcare crisis, which has financial ramifications, but it's a shock to the system. And uh, uh, so in 9-11, shock to the system then, we were in the middle of the tech and telecom bust. Uh, everyone was waiting around to see, okay, is this systemic? in terms of 9-11, more terrorist attacks and so forth. It wasn't, and uh, forces in motion stayed in motion. The tech and telecom uh, bust continued for another 18 months. This time around, we were in a very strong economy. And in fact, it was much stronger than what people perceive it to have been now. Uh, and the reason for that is in both China and the US, the consumer was really strong. And in the US in particular, the consumer also had a large buffer, an 8% saving rate, which has doubled over the last, uh, I'm going to say 10 years. Uh, so an 8% saving rate, nice buffer, consumer spending very strong, but businesses were pulling back. And they had been pulling back for 18 months because of the China-US trade conflict and because of inverted yield curves, which businesses were sure uh, were going to trigger a recession. Um, well, that is not what triggered the recession, and I'm not even sure that this will, in hindsight, be considered a recession. We'll see. I'm seeing numbers. Uh, a recession, the official definition is back-to-back -back quarters of negative GDP. Looks like first quarter will be up. Uh, looks like second quarter will be down big. And the question is, will we be down in the third? Not sure about that. Depends on how fast we get back to work. Uh, so I believe that forces in motion before this uh, crisis uh, will continue in motion. We will end up in more of a V-shaped recovery, I think, than most people believe because of the setup. The consumer was strong, had a nice buffer, savings buffer. Cons businesses had already pulled back. And if the consumer comes back, businesses are going to ha have to race to catch up to the consumer. Yeah, and, and so how do you um, take some of the data points that we're seeing? So we've got, uh, I think, about 16, 17 million Americans who have filed for unemployment in the last three weeks, right, on top of the 5.8 million or so at the end of February that uh, were unemployed. So 
call it, you know, 20 to 22 million um, is kind of the official number. Obviously, there, there's some uh, undercounting that probably goes on there. Uh, then you see things like I think there's a Wall Street Journal article that said uh, a third of renters didn't pay rent, right? And, and, you know, I'm probably with you in that you could question the accuracy of some of the uh, surveys and things like that, but it's a bigger number than I think most of us expected. Is that kind of temporary type uh, pain that, that the consumer or, or the average citizen experiences? Or is there something that uh, potentially you could get economic uh, gain in the third quarter and then you get the consumer that still suffers a little bit? Like, how, does, how do you think through that? Yeah, well, um, in terms of the numbers, I heard today on CNBC, uh, the CEO of Related, which has widespread uh, real estate holdings. So he gave numbers through, uh, through the, yesterday uh, and in his complex uh, of the uh, multi-dwelling homes, uh, he said 90% of those people are paying their rent, which was higher than he expected. Uh, uh, in commercial real estate, again, this is one company, but has very broad base, uh, 100% are paying rent. Uh, and uh, the biggest laggard is retail, you know, the, the retailers are on paper thin margins. So only a third are, are of his retail uh, tenants are paying rent. Whereas I think for the nation, it's more like down to 20%. So there's the weak link right there, right? And a lot of the people who are out of work are from bricks and mortar, uh, mom, more mom and pop small businesses. Uh, so yes, we we I, I've been uh, I've been surprised at how much work is taking place digitally. Our 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 business has not skipped a beat, not a beat. Uh, and in fact, I think we're so much more productive now in some ways than we are on a day to day basis. Um, maybe I'm speaking for myself. I don't know. Uh, so I think we're going to we're going to see an accelerated shift into an online. Uh, online work situation, which ultimately could hurt commercial. But in terms of the next half year, I think everybody, I think the, the Trump administration, the task force in particular, every day reassuring the nation saying, this is going to be temporary, this is going to be, and we're looking for, now most people don't believe uh, Trump when he says, well, this is going to be the sharpest, most vigorous, but they have to take into consideration that that could happen and that if they start doing stupid things like uh, shutting down, uh, uh, they'll be deprived of a big whip. I think that's been very important. So yeah. I think come out uh, uh, faster, including for, uh, including, you know, we had labor shortages before, labor shortages. Uh, so I, I think, I think we're going to come out of this faster than most people expect. Yeah. And, and one of the things you're kind of hinting at here is um, there's a, a couple of people who started to say, look, the virus may actually be an accelerant on the way into the economic shock, obviously, right? Hey, there were some issues. We're now seeing some of that um, accelerated, but it may also be an accelerant in terms of other trends. So things like remote work, um, a lot of technology enabled things. It sounds like you're you know pretty strong in that camp of believing that coming out of this, those trends just now are are more likely to occur or happen faster than they already were on pace to do. Yeah, so I started ARC in 2014 and we've probably had five significant risk-off, risk-on periods. And during each of those periods, I would, I would uh, um, lend perspective to our young analyst team and say, look, I've been through a, a lot of crises, innovation, 
gains market share at an accelerated rate in a crisis. Why better, cheaper, faster, more productive, more creative, new products and services to solve problems. And I think that's true here. I think this is, you know, we're, we're at uh, what I often call the sweet spot of the S-curve, just entering the steepest part. Even for online retail, I think many people are surprised given our own habits to learn that online retail in the United States is still only 15% of total retail sales. Now, I think in all of our lives, it's gone up to the majority of sales, if I, if I, or maybe not majority of non-grocery sales. I, even groceries are, are now coming online in a bigger way, thanks to Whole Foods, Amazon, and so forth. So I think some of the trends in motion that we thought, we thought we were just entering the sweet spot of the S-curve for retail, uh, I think I, I think this has accelerated it, as it has for online education, which is not at the sweet spot, but is definitely a trend. Uh, telemedicine, when you get uh, Medicare re uh, reimbursing uh, telemedicine, you know you're you're on to something big. So teledoc there, online education to you, uh, and. You know, these stocks have been affected in different ways. Teladoc has held up beautifully. It went out to an all-time high. And uh, we've tended to sell those stocks in favor of a company like 2U, which because of its low cash buffer and high cash burn, it's in a high investment phase of its uh, uh, life, uh, algorithms out there, this, these are mindless algorithms. All they do in a crisis is say, okay, two things matter low cash buffer, high cash burn. And they go out and they kill those stocks. So 2U went from $30 to 11 and a half in two weeks. That's nuts. That's nuts when it's one of the solutions to the problem, you know, that we're facing out there. Uh, so, you know, we were looking around for those sorts of names, which we know are going to be able to access the capital markets if they need it, because it's so clear they're a solution to the problem. Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about kind of the health crisis first, and then we'll get into the economic and policies and things there. Uh, yeah. The virus has shut down entire societies, right? I mean, countries, et cetera. What's yeah. kind of your take on, uh, is the health crisis uh, warranted in the sense of the response we have on the health side? Uh, are we doing enough, not enough? Kind of, how, how do you think through that? Yeah. Uh, you know, there have been two other coronaviruses circulating through our economy for, on a regular basis. They're annual now. They're part of now our annual flu season. Uh, so this coronavirus is different in that it's much more contagious, but much less deadly, right? So, but when you put those two together, the much more contagious, it could, it could hit a lot more people. Uh, much uh, less lethal, well, maybe it, maybe it would be typical flu-like numbers, which are anywhere from, uh, in the United States, 30,000 to 70,000 a year. Now, it looks like this one's going to kill maybe 60,000. Uh, and I guess that's the only number we can really count on because we don't know how many people really have been infected. Two people in my, uh, in my sphere, meaning my household and household health, have been infected. Um, uh, so uh, I, I think, you know, when books are written about this, we'll say, okay, well, okay, that was an overreaction. And yes, there, uh, there, 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 are, uh, there is a group of people that we must protect when something is that contagious 
even if it is less lethal. And in this case, it was the, those with other lung compromised uh, diseases, uh, as well as maybe people with high blood pressure. We're not sure about that one yet. Uh, so, uh, uh, and, you know, a couple of things are, are happening because of this uh, virus. First of all, we could not have sequenced it in two days. China sequenced it in two days. Uh, it took us uh, five months to sequence the SARS virus back in 03. Uh, so that, that happened very quickly. Now, uh, China probably knew the sequence, uh, uh, my guess is, well before they shared it with us. Um, uh, and if we had had it sooner, we would have understood it better. Um, uh, but now I think uh, the other thing that we're learning, the tests that Abbott and Cepheid, which is owned by Danaher, uh, have put out, and I know Cepheid well because I owned it before Danaher um, bought it, uh, and really, really good company. They, they're actually based on old-time old PCR technology. It's old technology. But what got them to market as fast as they could get to market were two things. First of all, the sequencing of the virus. We understand exactly what it is and we understand how it's mutating too. Uh, that's thanks to companies like Illumina. And then the second is synthetic biology. So if sequencing is the ability to read the DNA of a virus, uh, synthetic biology is the ability to write the DNA of a, a, a virus. And that company is Twist. It's one of the most advanced out there. Not many people know it, but it's an amazing company. Uh, if they had not done those two things, Abbott and, and uh, Cepheid wouldn't have been able to develop the tests as quickly as they have. So that's good. And I think the other thing that's uh, coming out of this, is, there are two other things from a healthcare point of view. After, so the SARS epidemic in 03, it circled the world and then went poof, it disappeared, unlike the other coronaviruses I mentioned to you. Uh, and so what happened during SARS, that was a crisis. I mean, this thing was, SARS was, the lethality of uh, SARS was at least 10%. Uh, Ebola was, gosh, it was, you know, well above 50%. And MERS was somewhere in between there. So again, this is much less deadly. We don't know how deadly it is because we don't know how many people have gotten it. We'll know after the fact. Um, so uh, back then, SARS, vaccines, like there was so much money pushed into uh, the, the development of vaccines. It went poof and the funding for vaccines dried up and then nobody wanted to be in vaccines. All these big pharma companies sold their vaccine companies because they were money pits, right? Now, again, we're, we're, now that we have new technologies like Moderna and Inovio and Arcturus, Moderna and Arcturus are based on RNA technology, Inovio on DNA technology. RNA, we've never seen it work. If it works, it's going to be amazing. And it will be a very profitable, it's going to be a winner take most, you know, because these companies have developed libraries of data and are going to be able to at least get the licensing fees, royalties uh, on all of this. So I think royal, uh, vaccine is gonna be a good place to be. And the other thing I think that this healthcare crisis has done has, is it's providing a lot of political cover. What politician is gonna say, no, I don't wanna pay for uh, 
testing for this, that, or the other disease, or I don't want to pay for vaccines. You know, we're not going to put that in the budgets. No, testing, which has also been, it's considered historically a commoditized business. And, and you have two big companies dominating. Um, uh, you have Quest and LabCorp in, in the old world, and it's mostly commoditized. Even their esoteric tests become commoditized just because they're so big. And now what's happening is you get a company like Invite or Gardent uh, or Personalis, uh, some of these you may have heard of, what they are doing, I think this is going to be a winner take most world, like so many in the artificial intelligence world. Uh, they are gathering all the data. They have harnessed geneticists throughout the world, you know, these pools of geneticists, and they are beginning to develop tests uh, that are very precise uh, and uh, because they can, they've collected the right kind of data. So I think they're going to have so much more political cover than they have had historically. It's always been an area starved of funding uh, because everyone assumed it's commoditized. It's not. We have the convergence of um, DNA sequencing, artificial intelligence, and then CRISPR gene editing, uh, which is going to not only, uh, not only will we be able to create these tests so that to understand in a very personal way, how your DNA is influenced, right? And, and what is impacted, what's, what your D, how your DNA is mutating, uh, they'll be able to figure that out. And then they'll be able to pull therapies off the shelf, or they'll be able to design them with gene editing to actually cure or reprogram your DNA and cure the disease. That's where we're going. Yeah, it's super exciting to see kind of the healthcare side um, and, and I think that the idea of a vaccine or cure uh, is a uh, health component, but it's also a psychological component. Once people know that's out there, I think that changes the mindset. Um, what is your thoughts about the economic cure, right? So we kind of have a health crisis that's causing an economic crisis um, or kind of a shock, as you described it. Uh, there's a lot of economic policies that have been uh, implemented. What's kind of your general view of what's already been done and maybe even what needs to be done in the future? Right. So, uh, you know, my mentor is Art Laffer. I don't know if you're familiar with the Laffer Curve supply side economics, but he advises Trump, uh, President Trump informally, regularly. And I know because I hear during the task force briefings, I hear some of the things that Art Laffer says coming out of President Trump's uh, mouth. Uh, in the beginning, Art was very frustrated that they were just throwing money at this, uh, just willy-nilly and uh, effectively, uh, effectively throwing money at the idea that we don't want people to work. And from, from one point of view, that was correct. Uh, we wanted people, if they could, to work from home, of course, but we wanted them to be safe, first and foremost. Um, they had, as, so the, the programs that were being designed in the early days and were just throw the money at them have been modified so that um, you're seeing more in the form of loans to small businesses and others uh, that will have to be repaid after a, a long grace period. So that is good just to keep the infrastructure in place to keep the, to allow the employment to rebound uh, afterwards instead of 
unlike in a recession where you have capital uh, destruction, uh, you, it takes a long time to work through it and then to come back. So I think that's good. I think it's good that they ha are sending checks out to those who, can who are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, but I think a more important uh, way to help those people and would have the same effect would be to say, and I've heard President Trump mention it, it hasn't been put into any um, legislation yet, uh, to for basically go on a payroll tax holiday, uh, both, both for the employers and the employees uh, through the end of the year. What would that do? It would say, would encourage businesses who are getting these uh, holidays and employees to get back to work as quickly as it possible to take advantage of the holiday and increase uh, their returns by six to seven percent on either side. That's huge. That's the tax wedge that uh, Art Laffer talks about all the time. Uh, if you get rid of that wedge, you'll bring a lot more activity back much sooner than otherwise would be the case. Uh, and I think the other, uh, in terms of the way they're treating larger corporations, I think uh, they're creating inducements to rev back up faster. What they're doing is they're saying, okay, if you take these loans, uh, then you cannot buy, buy back shares or pay dividends for a year past when, uh, and I don't know if the legislation has changed here a bit, but this is how it was being written, a year past uh, the day you repay those loans. Well, what, what will that uh, cause? Shareholders certainly will want their companies to, uh, to get back on track much faster so they can pay back the loans to the government and then get back to paying dividends, uh, which for many people are a large chunk of their, uh, of their income, especially retirees, uh, and to repurchase shares, which uh, favors all shareholders. So I think they're doing things, they're, they're gradually getting it right and very sensitive. You hear more and more about, um, you hear certainly the president and the vice president talking about getting people back to work safely. So you'll have Pence uh, focused on the safety and you'll have Trump focused on getting back to work. And it's a good dynamic and an important dynamic, I think. Yeah. Are you worried at all? Um, you know, we're in a deflationary environment now. Uh, there's a lot of QE going on. Uh, are you one worried that we could over-rotate on the inflationary side when we switch back? Uh, and are there any impacts that, uh, that you foresee potentially on the U.S. dollar um, as kind of a, a global asset or reserve asset? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, so the first question, and when we can, uh, we can take some of, um, we can inform the answer to that question partly by what happened after 0809. So I remember when, you know, it was QE everything, you know, uh, I remembered being concerned saying, wow, this is just, such an inducement to take a lot of risk and just go out there and go for it. That's not what happened. What happened was people were so traumatized by the near breakdown of our financial and economic system that they were not sure we were going to be able to hold together. And, uh, you know, there were, there were all kinds of uncertainties, including what became the election year, 
you know, we had the European sovereign debt crisis. Uh, we had uh, in 16 oil prices crashing uh, like they have recently and China seeming to implode. And so every step along the way, there was a reason for people to hold back and not uh, throw everything that they have at risk taking. And in fact, the, loss, the velocity of money, which is the critical answer here, has been falling and my guess is falling at an accelerated rate now. And so all of that QE, most of it is still sitting on the balance sheets of central banks. Now, the way I think about that still is that is kindling for the fire, potential fire that you're talking about, but that kindling hasn't been lit for the past 10 years because every step along the way, including uh, the China-US trade conflict and the inverted yield curves, every one of those steps along the way has been a reason to recoil and say, so the velocity of money has continued to come down. Uh, now, we have M2 today growing at a 15% year-over-year rate, which is, I believe, the fastest. I mean, you have to go back a lot of years to see that. I think many people have gotten used to this idea that we can throw anything we want at the system and velocity will fall and offset it. There will become a day, and this could be the beginning, but I don't think it will, I don't think we'll see the ramifications in terms of inflation for, I'm going to say, at least a year and a half, maybe two years. Because first, we still do have a little bit of this seizing up and people saying, is my job going to be there? So that's one reason. Uh, and business is the same, is my business going to exist? So again, another reason. If you look, I just listened to the JP Morgan call this morning and you know, so many businesses have taken down their revolvers completely. You know, So they are just awash in cash. They're awash in cash. And uh, they did the same thing in uh, 08, 09. But again, nothing happened. Everybody being scared every step along the way. So the reason we won't have an inflation problem for the next 18 months, two years, is, there are two reasons. One, oil prices have crashed and oil is a big part of you know, uh, the input. And, and there's a good reason secularly for oil to crash. We, we talk about it all the time. I think oil's going down longer term to $10 or less per barrel. And I've been saying that for a while. That's a personal point of view. And that's because of electric vehicles and autonomous electric vehicles at the margin uh, gas-powered cars are going to start losing out, and commodity prices are determined at the margin. That's what a lot of people miss when they say, oh, well, electric vehicles are only 2% of all sales. No, uh, they're a much higher percentage of the growth in the auto industry, right? So, so the first reason is that major input to so many industries. The second is... Um, Typically, if we're going to have a V-shaped recovery, what, what will happen is productivity will surge. Now, productivity was already starting to surge. So again, this idea of forces in motion, continue in motion. I think the accelerated shift into new technologies now is going to cause an acceleration in productivity growth. Uh, we're probably going to see productivity growth numbers in the next year that we haven't seen, I'm going to say, since the 60s. Uh, so that's, that's another reason. Productivity is a huge force against inflation. 
Because, why? Because uh, a company which benefits from productivity can do three things with it. It can increase wages. So if, they, if, com if companies have labor shortages, they will increase uh, uh, wages, but not now. Nobody has labor shortage because uh, the unemployment rate is going to go to 15% or whatever or higher. Um, it can go to lower prices to compete and bring com consumers back and to compete against China because China is using innovation uh, and deflation to compete. Uh, so that's another thing that could happen here, which would reinforce this disinflationary cycle. Or it can go to increase profit margins. And it's probably going to, depending on the industry, going to go to all three. So I don't think we'll see inflation uh, in the near term. I do worry about it now that no one thinks it's possible anymore. I remember starting in the business, it was the late 70s, I was in college, and I remember looking at these CPI numbers that were coming out and economists didn't, didn't believe them because they thought inflation had been licked when really it had just started because we went off the gold exchange standard in 1971. But no one could believe the numbers we were seeing. And that's because they had been lulled into complacency that the Fed could do anything it wanted. Well, I think that we're back in that situation, but we will not face, and I know where you're going with this, obviously, Bitcoin, we won't face the real ramifications for another couple of years. Um, but, you know, I know uh, we've increased our Bitcoin exposure in the discretionary portfolios at ARC. Uh, and um, I think uh, I think it's the right thing to do from an insurance policy point of view. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely gonna get to Bitcoin for sure. Uh, well, one of the things I want to talk about before is let's just talk about innovation in a time of crisis first, and then we can kind of go through a number of uh, either different investments or industries that I know you guys are interested in, uh, and we'll finish up with Bitcoin. Uh, but when it comes to innovation, you, you've said a number of times now that uh, innovation almost like steals market share during these times of crisis, right? And, and technology has a, a massive advantage. Maybe elaborate on that a little bit and explain kind of what you mean by that and, and if you have any examples of where that's happened before. Sure, I'll start out by giving you uh, two examples from the 0809 period, since we have that data and we don't have all the data from this crisis yet. Although I can tell you from the way our stocks are behaving, the market is beginning to understand this. Whereas in 0809, uh, if you looked at salesforce.com, you, you would have thought I was going out of business. So what happened in 0809? I remember listening to researchers uh, from GE saying, uh, you know, our, our tech budgets have been shut down effectively. I can't get any of my projects done. I'm using my personal credit card to buy, to pay as I go, buy salesforce.com software as a service and I'll put that in as an expense. It's not a capital spending item anymore. And that was an aha moment for me, certainly. So if you look back then, most software stocks, uh, companies, uh, which had the enterprise license model, which most of them did at the time, their budgets were cut enormously, or they were hit badly. If you look at, and, and salesforce.com was just taken down with all of them, like it was, but because it was a newbie, like it was going out of business, it sold off worse than some of the enterprise license model players. Um, so it, when you look back on what happened there, while tech budgets were down 20 to 30%, 
salesforce.com was an answer to a problem. I can't afford these big enterprise license fees, the upfront fees. I can't at the end of 08, I, I can't renew. Uh, I have to move over to salesforce.com, pay as you go, and other software as a service models. Salesforce.com's worst quarter in that crisis from a revenue growth point of view, remember people thought it was going out of business, was up 20% in the worst crisis since the Great Depression. Um, uh, retail sales for many, I, I looked at retail sales numbers going back to 08, uh, the macro sales, they were down 10 to 12% at their worst. Amazon's worst quarter was up 14%. And I think their worst quarter this time around, isn't. there's not going to be a worst quarter. Their sales aren't going to skip a beat. They're one of the biggest beneficiaries. Uh, if you look at Amazon's sales growth over the last 20 years, they've averaged almost 25%. And, you know, if you had told someone back then that was going to happen, well, first of all, no one would believe it. If in our world, what people do even today, because they're, they're so value oriented, they say, okay, this innovators uh, sales, yeah, they can grow for 25% for the next two to three years, then they'll decay to the GDP growth rate. That's not what's happening now. The waves of innovation that we're seeing and Amazon is the first First proof of concept of this idea that we could actually see some of these companies grow at an exponential rate. And all that means is that they will sustain some kind of super growth number like 25% instead of decaying according to the law of large numbers, right? Uh, I think that, uh, I, th I think our portfolios are teeming with that kind of stock. And what we tend to do during a period like this is we will consolidate towards either our highest conviction names or the stocks, like I mentioned to you, that, that are so misunderstood in terms of uh, there being a solution to the problem. So I can rattle through if you'd like to, to me to rattle through by sector or industry. Now, the obvious uh, beneficiaries, which have done very well, Amazon just went out to a new high today, an all-time high. Uh, so Amazon and Netflix, I would put Teladoc and Zoom into this category. Zoom, despite its problems with uh, uh, privacy and exposure to China uh, in terms of having its workers there. They, they've been obvious beneficiaries and people have flocked to, investors have flocked to them. So when, when that is happening in our portfolios, particularly in our flagship portfolio, we will be more opportunistic and use those as cash sources in order to deploy towards the much less well-recognized beneficiaries. So while Zoom is very well um, uh, recognized, you'll have companies like uh, Zscaler in the security space and PagerDuty in the uh, instant management space. You'll have, I have some noted, pure storage in solid state, in the, in the storage space, the new wave of storage, though. Uh, you'll uh, have, um, well, you'll have Workday. Workday is well understood, but I think it's at a point of accelerated shift as well because it's moving, it's infiltrated through HR departments, and now it's moving into financial, and it's really getting at the oracles and the SAPs of the world. So again, what, what, what this is saying is the, the, the 
old guard is going to lose share at an accelerated rate. Beware. Those are the companies that occupy the, big, the, the highest positions in the index funds out there because they're the largest caps. It's these newbies that are nipping at their heels that have you know, the opportunity to be 10 baggers, as we say, because they're not well recognized. Um, in the media- and Kathy, part of this, sorry to interrupt, but I guess part of this too is it's not just the names, right? I think one of the things that you're highlighting here is it's also the strategy of, um, you know, take a Zoom, everyone sees that it's working, everyone's piling in. Uh, it's very easy for there to be a bubble-like mania in a single name because yeah. it's the obvious choice. What right. it sounds like you guys are doing is you actually start as that rides and people recognize it, you actually start trimming a little of the position take that cash, and then you go look for what, what's the next wave that everyone's going to realize, oh, that's a beneficiary. But if you could find those before it, uh, you're going to benefit, obviously, from the growth that it'll experience. Right. And, and the popularity of Zoom is going to feed these other infrastructure players because we, we need the infrastructure to support it, right? Uh, so uh, we owned a Zoom, and um, we owned it in a sm small size, though, because the, the, mar the enterprise value to sales ratio is up at I think at the time, 50 times, I mean, it was crazy. Right? Enterprise value to sales, right? That includes debt and everything. And uh, we just said, okay, we'll put it in because it certainly is disruptive uh, and is taking share from the WebExes and the other more established but kludgy players. Um, it's not really taking share from Teams, which is my Microsoft, but they're bro both growing very rapidly together. Um, but we sold it out when it just took off as everything else was plummeting. And uh, so th that is where we will make a valuation call like that saying, okay, this, this now everyone recognizes and it's gone even further north in terms of that valuation. And look at these others that are there to support it, but are being dumped. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. really important. It, it, it's really interesting too, because I think that um, part of this, uh, of your strategy, um, it's not, rocket science, right? It's basically find the value before others recognize it, have the courage and conviction to invest capital in those businesses. And then as other people realize that that's an obvious winner or, or a beneficiary, whether it's from the virus or some other uh, sector, you benefit. One of where I think uh, you really kind of went to bat and there was a lot of people saying, there's no way you're right. And all stuff was Tesla. Right. And, and you guys were early. And uh, I, I believe even when the price continued to fall, you continued to buy, right? Like the yeah. ultimate sign of conviction. And you've kind of been uh, proven right to some degree uh, as we sit today. Maybe talk a little bit about like that specific name and, and kind of what you guys have seen there. Well, what's so interesting. Okay, so um, at the beginning of this year, it soared to almost $1,000. Last May, this time last year, it had dropped to 100 and it got into the 170s uh and we were buying all the way down and you know i often say i'm the most trolled portfolio manager on twitter <laughs> um uh, I, and i am in that and because that not because of me but because of elon and that stock and all the shorts that were who were supporting it and uh, we had built a very strong case. It's our highest conviction name still. So, but it soared to 900 plus 
we were taking profits. If we hadn't taken profits, it would have been at 20 to 25% of our portfolios, which we absolutely cannot let ha happen. We can only buy up to 10%. So from a psychological point of view, what I like to do when it goes above 10%, I mean, I like to let it ride, certainly, but at some point, like to take it down, back down to 10%, so that if it drops from there, remember, we can't buy if it's 10% plus. If it does drop from 10%, though, we can buy again. So I usually like to take it down to 10%, and then it drops and it did. It dropped all the way down to $350 in this crisis. And, and why? Because the shorts were saying, aha, even though they have $8 billion in cash now, they're saying oil prices are crashing. No reason to buy an electric vehicle. Crazy talk. Even the, we've, done, we've done the total cost of ownership with oil prices at this level. It's still cheaper to own an electric vehicle today. Now on a sticker price basis, Maybe it'll take a year or so. Uh, but so we were buying all the way down to 350. I, I can't tell you what the mark was, the last mark. You never catch the, exactly the bottom. We took, kept taking it back up to 10%. So that's our style. And now again, I think it's up to 13.5% uh, of our portfolio today because it's had another nice move. Why is this move happening? It's happening because the bears, who are typically auto analysts, are seeing what their traditional auto companies are doing in this period. In order to preserve uh, a six or 7% dividend, GM is having to cut spending. And where is it cutting its spending? Electric vehicles. It's cutting everywhere, but electric vehicles. It's going to, it's going to fall even further behind Tesla in terms of its EVG. And we think it's already two to three to maybe four years behind, probably four years behind, and we'll be going five years behind. I think it's becoming obvious to these auto analysts, finally, um, how, how uh, long a lead, uh, uh, lead time Tesla has relative to the other auto manufacturers. Uh, and so, and you know, they are in harm's way financially. Uh, I don't, you know, Ford eliminated its dividend GM's still keeping its dividend. My guess is it will go too. And that will continue to highlight, you know, Tesla doesn't have a dividend. 100% of its R&D is in electric. It doesn't have to share with uh, uh, internal combustion engine uh, R&D, uh, which they still, have to, they, they, they still have to spend that money. That's the 95% plus of their fleets, right? Um, and so uh, we think Tesla, because of this crisis, has gained even more lead time here. Um, yeah, and, and, and I guess when the oil prices crash like this, um, the argument that one Tesla is still cheaper, right, it, it's kind of one component of it. Uh, but, but it's really interesting to think about Tesla actually gaining market share, even though oil prices are crashing, right? And it has more to do with what the uh, incumbents are not going to do versus what Tesla is doing. Right? Tesla sounds like it's just doing what they've been doing the whole time. Uh, it's everybody else starts cutting back and therefore Tesla ends up benefiting from a, a gain in market share. Yeah. If you, um, using the first quarter numbers, uh, so last year Tesla had 17% of the um, global, the global EV market, including China, which is the largest market. Now, I think these are just U.S. numbers. Uh, they could be global, though. 
by our estimates in the first quarter, Tesla had 30% market share. Yeah. That's a big, so, that's a big leap. Yeah. Now those are all crude and rough and, you know, we're backing into all kinds of numbers. I know that's not the right number, uh, but they have gained enormous share uh, in, in this and, and they're gaining enormous share of, of total auto sales because total auto sales went from, let's see, 17 million a year ago to 11.4 in March and Tesla's, uh, sales on a year over year basis. Now we only have the total, uh, first quarter, I think, but I think again, I'm, I'm not, not exactly right their sales didn't drop by 40, 50%. I think they went up by 30, 40% year over year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. And then I guess this leads to um, kind of longer term, right? One of the things that we talked about last time uh, when we recorded was uh, the idea of the autonomous taxis, right? And you kind of, you know, much farther out. Um, when I asked for people that uh, questions to send in uh, for you, one of them was around this idea of uh, if that is the ultimate uh, kind of um, end state here, and that's where a lot of value gets created as well, does it make sense at any point over the short to medium term for Tesla to create an actual ride sharing app and start competing with the Ubers and, and Lyfts of the world? Or is it more continue to invest in R&D, continue to build out that actual technology, and then you back into the fleet you know, at some point in the future? Well, it's a great question uh, from a couple of angles. Uh, first, Tesla's ability to, 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 to produce is limited by, the, the constraint is management. And so they need to build out management, and they are. Uh, and so in the meantime, as they're revving up on getting their management infrastructure in place around the world, Europe, Asia, and so forth, here, here Texas, another one, um, uh, we do believe that they are going to start their own ride hailing service. Uh, Elon has hinted as such. I, I think there was a question on, I think it was a recent conference call, but it could have been a podcast where Elon uh, said, yeah, it sounded like a good idea. Usually when he says that, done, you know? Now, the reason it's also a very good question is I think Uber and Lyft are in a world of hurt here. And the reason for that is the way that business was beginning to evolve is you were getting these entrepreneurs who were saying, okay, I'm going to buy several cars here and, and I'll buy the cars, I'll own them, and I'll, I'll populate them with riders. Well, guess what? They, they were on shoestring margins probably in the early days, anyone in the early days. So a lot of them are, are going to be out of business. You know, they'll lose the cars and all of that. that and that's sad. Um, so there is an opportunity here for uh, Tesla to come in. And what that will do, it'll do two things that are very important strategically for, for, for Tesla. One, it will increase their free cash flow. It's a very, very profitable business relative to their base business today which is just producing cars. That's uh, that the just producing cars is, you know, a 25 to 30% growth gross margin business. And this is probably that this one, if it were their own ride hailing service, uh, would be north of 50%. The way they would probably do it interestingly would be to say to these former entrepreneurs, 
you know, if you give us 5,000 down on a car, we will let you, you become a part of our fleet. And you can pay down that car by giving us a percentage of your, uh, your uh, fees. Um, the, the take rate, it would be the take rate. The take rate for Uber and Lyft is, uh, you know, 25 to 30%. And we think that's going down. Um, we think uh, we think Tesla's take rate could be much higher because these owners would be paying down their cars over time, and they'd be employed in this business. So it's a win-win for uh, for, for for both sides. It's also a win-win on in two ways for Tesla. One, the free cash flow. The second is having a ride-hailing uh, 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 service out there means. They, their collection of data will go into overdrive. You know, they'll be pushing cars out that drive 50, 60% of the day instead of I drive my Tesla uh, 5% of the day. You know, so that I don't collect very many miles per day for Tesla to, to, to inform its AI deep learning uh, neural net systems. Uh, whereas these, um, uh, these, these drivers would be contributing a lot to the data. Yeah, it, it's super interesting. Um, another name that you've been uh, quite bullish on and, and actually agree with uh, is, is somewhat un underestimated is uh, Square and what they're doing in uh, in the fintech and payment space. Maybe give us kind of your thoughts on just like why so bullish on that company and then we can talk through some of the intricacies or nuances of it. Yeah, and I'm going to give a shout out for um, uh, to, to Max Friedrich, who's our analyst, and we're just about to publish a white paper on um, comparing Venmo and Cash App to traditional banks and even to each other. You know, Venmo is a bit older than Cash App. And, and because of that, Cash App has some advantages, certainly in terms of its agility and in terms of marketing strategies. Uh, uh, and you know, it's a, it's a more it's a younger it's a younger team, I would have to say. Um, and and we got a lot of data, you know, uh, from PayPal's API. You know, they 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 basically publish this data, so it's a very rich white paper in terms of learning about these ecosystems and uh, learning the competitive advantages that uh, both PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App have relative to banks. So. In the, case, in the case of Square, um, you know, I just love it because it, it is really enabling, you know, uh, uh, the lower income strata of this economy, anywhere from the lower income to the highest income. Uh, but really, it's much more meaningful to the unbanked. And if you look at where Cash App really took off first, uh, if you look at a map, uh, and you compare it to an FDIC map of the unbanked and underbanked uh, part of the United States, you'll see the overlay is almost an exact match. And so that's how it started. And it started with these mom and pop businesses uh, really using the square point of sale device to put on top of their uh, cell phone to actually do business. And so what can Square see? Unlike a bank, which can't, maybe sees end of month or end of quarter income statements, Square sees every transaction that this uh, merchant uh, make or has. 
and can see the cadence, can see when uh, business is good, when it's bad. And what it's starting to do now is say, hey, we see that you're growing your business. We can offer you a working capital loan. And guess what? You can pay that loan off as your business. Uh, you know, daily you can pay a bit off, you know, so it becomes a real time. Oh, and we see you probably need more employees. Hey, we can help you with a payroll service. And then they will start infiltrating a consumer base too, which is part of the employee base of this. So it's Cash App gets um, uh, 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 added strength because it's becoming part of a bigger ecosystem that is proliferating first through the South. Now it's moving up. We're seeing it move and, and you'll see uh, uh, on the maps how it is. So the competitive advantage that these companies have relative to banks I think is going to destroy banks. It's going to turn them into commoditized utility. I mean, there will be, um, uh, there, there will be a, a, a reason for banks, but it's not, going to be, it's not going to be the most profitable reason there are for banks now. Uh, the other reason banks are going to have so much trouble. Uh, if you look at the number of digital users and include banks in the United States, the banks were doing pretty well uh, until uh, Cash App and Venmo started gaining cri critical mass. Now, according to our estimates this year, uh, well, Venmo's already above, uh, uh, above JP Morgan, which is something like more than 40 million, something like that. Uh, and and, and uh, Cash App is not far behind. In fact, we believe Cash App will pass uh, JP Morgan this year as well. Uh, now, how is this happening? The banks have the installed base. That's always the trap when you're talking about innovation. Oh, the old guard says, that's our market. We're going to wipe these newbies off the face of the earth. We can do that. Um, not so, because the cost of customer acquisition for Cash App and Pay PayPal is a fraction of that of the banks. Banks have to pay to attract a new uh, checking account or a new credit card. Uh, or debit card, somewhere between, they have to pay from a marketing and other costs, somewhere between $350 to $1,500 per. And the reason they've been willing to go as high as $1,500 is because these customers typically have been very sticky and their lifetime value has been, uh, uh, has been very lucrative for the banks. Um, today, Cash App and PayPal pay $20, think about that, $1,500 versus $20. And the reason for that is because of the viral nature of Cash App and Venmo. You know, if you're telling, in the case of, I mean, it's kind of funny, if you, took a, if, if you take a look at uh, how quickly social networks evolve, so the Facebooks and uh, Googles uh, of the world, um, uh, uh, if you look at uh, Cash App and and Venmo, their, their, uh, their uptake is twice as fast as social networking. They're much more viral. Why is that? Well, for the social networks, Facebook, um, Instagram today, uh, you know, young people don't really want their parents to be following them, right? But when it comes to Venmo and Cash App, heck yeah. Heck yeah, come on, mom, <laughs> come on, dad. And so their parents are being forced into this faster too. And if you look at the various cohorts, cohort by cohort, 
both the younger groups and the older groups are moving on to Cash App and Venmo twice as fast as they moved on to social media. So this is becoming a big business. And, and so I often say banks uh, had these creatures, the Venmo and Cash App, nipping at their heels, right? And uh, we can't even say creatures and nipping. They are, you know, they are uh, overtaking them in the digital realm completely. Uh, but if you even think on the deposit side, I know this crisis will, will change this to some extent short term, but I don't think it will change it long term. You've got Marcus, Goldman Sachs's Marcus, which, you know, they are really trying to become, uh, they're trying to move into the digital realm and take advantage of some of the low cost of customer acquisition like Square and Cash App. You know, they have been competing uh, uh, with the banks who were offering maybe 50 basis points for deposit accounts. Uh, for a while there, were, they were over 3%. They're not now, uh, but in order to uh, make inroads, they're going to have to go for the jugular of the banks. And the jugular is that net interest margin, which is the difference between what a bank gets on a loan and what a bank has to pay on deposit accounts, which fund these loans. Uh, so it used to be huge before Marcus came around. And now Marcus and other newbies, I know SoFi and others are offering, even today, crazy uh, rates relative to um, uh, what's offered in, in the markets. And they're probably taking risk to do that too. Yeah, and I think in one of the recent reports you guys put out, I think it was the Big Ideas presentation for 2020, um, one of the things I saw that was really interesting was the market is valuing the users differently as well, right? So the idea oh, that yeah. the, the bank customers are getting valued at a premium to the Cash App or Venmo users, uh, and ultimately you, you expect that it at least comes to on par, if not at some point the Cash App users and Venmo users are more uh, valued. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Uh, very good. You really dug into big ideas. Not many I, people dig that deeply into it. <laughs> I, I, I read it every year. It's great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So if you look at what, um, what investors, uh, I think it's a bit different now after the crisis, but when we did big ideas at the end of last year, investors were willing to pay uh, um, $3,600 roughly dependent on the bank, $3,000 to $3,600 for each deposit holder or deposit account. Uh, if you look at uh, each user um, uh, uh, in Cash App, of Cash App and Venmo, they're paying anywhere for, from $50 to $150. We think, uh, so that would mean that, that the, the market, the public equity markets are paying uh, 20 times plus for banks when these guys are about to eat the bank's lunch, right? And so it makes no sense. And uh, they're much more valuable models also because of the virality. They're much more, they should be valued more like social networks than banks. Um, and yet they're completely dismissed out there. And I think it's just because people haven't, they haven't done the homework. They don't really believe this yet. Um, you can't say these, these uh, companies are too small anymore. They're, they're, uh, 
they're growing and they're growing very rapidly. Uh, so, uh, but I think it'll only be time uh, and, and we'll catch up. So that's why Square is in our top five in both our flagship and our FinTech funds and, and actually our next generation internet fund. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. Uh, I've told a story before to others, but uh, I've got a brother who is, uh, I, th I think, 23, 24 years old. And uh, one day I asked him, uh, kind of joking, giving him a hard time, I said, uh, do you know how to send a bank wire, right? And as you would expect, his response is, what's a bank wire? And I said, well, how do you send money to your friends? And uh, I expected a Venmo or Cash App type. And he said, well, I had two ways. He said, uh, Venmo is one. And then he said, Uber. And I remember thinking to myself, Uber? And he said, well, yeah, well, like when I get out of the car, you know, we split a ride, basically like Uber does it for me. Yes. And I, and I was like, that really just highlights the difference of how, you know, his generation of uh, kind of young 20s, they literally think of Uber as a way to pay their friends. And I yep. think that most people over the age of, you know, 35, they've got no clue that that's even a possibility, let alone that that's how a kid would think about it. Absolutely. If, if Uber's underlying business weren't so bad, you know, uh, we'd probably be more interested in it for, in it for that reason, honestly. I'll just make one more, um, or give you one more thought, uh, very relevant to your world. You know, uh, Cash App has been so creative in marketing. And I think, you know, the Cash App Fridays where they give away one Bitcoin, you know, and you can buy and sell Bitcoin in the Cash App. It's pretty seamless. Um, you know, I, I believe, and I believe this is one reason Jack Dorsey was going to move to Africa for a while. I believe that this is Square's way of infiltrating the emerging markets. Now, they have an extraordinary opportunity now because what we say about innovation when it comes to emerging markets is even more true. They have to usually run away from disaster in terms of the loss of purchasing power associated with their currencies. And Africa gets hit every time. And so to, uh, to bring Bitcoin into that realm in a way that they're able to, you know, I'm sure capital controls and regulation will, will present some obstacles, but to the extent they can help sal salvage the purchasing power and wealth of some of these individuals, Bitcoin with all its volatility was up big last year. It's up year over year still, I believe. Uh, and, uh, and their currencies have been smashed, right? And so I think that Square's way of infiltrating the emerging markets has been very difficult. There are a lot of obstacles that develop, the developed world puts up as Square tries to migrate into Japan and then to Australia. It takes a long time. I think it could happen a lot faster in the emerging markets. Um, and the same is, of course, true with PayPal. Yeah. Uh, I can't let you go without talking a little bit of Bitcoin. Uh, you are obviously one of, uh, one of the most bullish people, I think, uh, on Wall Street. Uh, maybe let's start with just what you guys have done uh, with your Bitcoin allocation over the last uh, you know, month or two, and then we'll get into uh, some of the other aspects of it. Okay. So I um, can talk about this in two ways. Only one of our ETFs is holding uh, Bitcoin. GBTC, Grayscale Bitcoin Investment Trust. Uh, and, and you know, there are new instruments, one's just launching in Canada. Uh, so we're analyzing, uh, we're doing the compare and contrast there. So we may uh, change things up a little bit on, uh, in terms of the exact instrument, but um, we have added to it uh, in, uh, uh, it's our next generation internet, ARKW, we've added to it. 
we cannot go, uh, and this is we put our this is a, a limit we've imposed on ourselves. Um, we cannot buy above two percent, and and we're closing in on that now. Um, and the reason for that is we, if we do, we risk um, subjecting our our shareholders to something called unqualified income. And I think I mentioned it to you on our last. Uh, uh, podcast together. Uh, unqualified income, uh, if, if more, it's not illegal, but if more than 10% of a fund's returns of the gross profits is in unqualified income, and in this case, just think of it would be like commodity-based income. It's not financial markets. It's more CFTC regulated. Uh, uh, so if more than 10% of our gross profits is in unqualified income, then uh, the IRS, uh, and these are realized profits, the IRS would be able to, to confiscate everything above 10%. Now, what's, what's the nightmare scenario here? Say we're in a black swan event and the fund drops by, let's say it drops by 50%, which was 0809, right? That was some funds dropped 50%. And let's say Bitcoin went up and it hit 10% of our portfolio. Say it went up 100%, hit 10% of our portfolio. Uh, it would be generating all of the profits and we could only keep 10% of them. Mm -hmm. In other words, and it's even worse because we'd be generating all these losses and of the gross profits, the gross, this is not net, this is gross profits that Bitcoin would deliver Let's say it was up, say it went up 10, tenfold. Just, I'd, we'd only get to keep 10% of that and we'd be realizing the loss on the rest of the portfolio. So it's a little bit crazy, the rules and regs, and hopefully they change over time. In our discretionary portfolios, which are not 40 act funds and where we can do what we want, uh, Bitcoin is about 5% uh, of the portfolio. We bought during the swoon, um, to uh, the swoon from, uh, well, it was from, very quickly from 8,000 into the, the threes. Uh, so, uh, and, and we're happy there, 5%. I think, uh, I think that's good for, for, especially given what's happened to the rest of the stocks. We had, we had a big correction there as well. So we've had to, we've had, to, we've been doing a lot of trading. Yeah. And, and uh, let's start with um, the kind of Black Thursday, if you want to call it, or, or whatever, somebody's going to come up with some cute name for it. But there was a drop of 50%. Uh, in the Bitcoin price, um, you know, a lot of people, I think that even the, the strong hand holders, uh, while they still held, uh, I definitely got some phone calls and people were like, you know, oh shit, <laughs> uh, yeah. th th this doesn't feel great. Uh, yeah. Maybe, you know, kind of what was your analysis and like what happened there and, and kind of how you guys thought about that? Yeah, I think the shock for a lot of people uh, is that we've been able to say for so long that uh, Bitcoin is uncorrelated. And here we were, uh, in the middle of a, a difficult market for equities, and we were facing difficulties with this one as well. And many people who, who are in both worlds were just probably a little shaken up by that. That was not supposed to happen. Uh, just it, we didn't think it would happen. Uh, and so this notion that all assets correlate to one in terms of their performance, now, uh, now we can say applies to Bitcoin in a crisis. It makes a lot of sense. A lot of the people involved in Bitcoin 
run hedge funds. We are primarily a, a long only equity uh, a, 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 um, manager. So, um, so it makes sense when, when one market is hurting, the others will as well as there are margin calls. Now, what I didn't know is that was happening. Yassine Almandra, who, who I, I believe you're, uh, you, you know, you know less. Yes. Yeah. Um, he, uh, at our brainstorm that week, went through the 100 times leverage on this, that, and the other exchange. And, and I, I remember saying to, uh, I remember saying to Yassine, I said, Yassine, I know a lot about Bitcoin. And, and, and I also am on the lookout, especially during, during difficult markets for leverage points. Who has the leverage? Who's going to be forced to sell? Where are the margin calls going to be? And I said, but I didn't know there was 100 times leverage out there anywhere. <laughs> and, and I said, is this common knowledge? And he said, uh, it is in the Bitcoin world. But I think the disconnect, if I had to be honest about it, is those in the Bitcoin world, that became normal because these guys were, they were, they could do no wrong. They were, they, they could do no wrong, you know? So, and by the way, in the equities market over the years, I've always learned whenever I think I can do no wrong, watch out, Just watch out, start, start taking the risk off, right? Because it's too easy. That's what happened. And there were too many out there who had net, who were, who, who were leveraged to that extent who had no idea what a, bull, a bear market would do to them, like kill them, they're dead. Uh, now, I think the good thing that's happened about that is everyone knows leverage is something you really have to watch. And, you know, uh, even in terms of, you know, uh, our future plans, uh, we, uh, uh, in terms of using leverage in the crypto world, um, you know, I, I know what to do. I've, I've run hedge funds and, and so forth, but it's very clear to me that the people who were stuck, um, I don't think they were the sophisticated hedge funds. They were the uh, individuals who uh, got hooked and then, uh, you know, began to believe they could do nothing wrong and then now are out of business. I think it's a good thing for the ecosystem that, um, that that understanding is look for the le leverage. That's where your weak link is. And you can even, you can even say that in the various uh, crypto asset ecosystems, they all learned a little bit more. Uh, the governance on some of these is excellent, but they are all learned a little bit more about, you know, how to adjust their governance to look out for that as a pain point, as a potential pain point and risk factor which I think is good. I think it's good for the whole ecosystem. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's one of those things where uh, people got to learn the lesson, right? And I think that definitely happened. Uh, and the other piece too is a lot of the people that were selling, getting liquidated, et cetera, they're not the long-term holders, right? Yeah. The, the, if you look at uh, most of the uh, uh, Bitcoin that moved uh, that day and kind of the weeks before and after, it's all things that have moved in the last year. Right, yeah. pretty much. The, there's a bunch of people who hold on to it, um, and they believe it's going to be a very binary outcome. There's no leverage. There's no anything. There's passive holders, uh, and that number continues to grow. So I think generally uh, headed in the right direction. And, uh, and this is great. It's great that there's data on that because I know Yassine has presented us with that chart. Who sold the? Who sold? All recent uh, buyers. Uh, you know, pretty much. Very, very little by the long-term holders. 
Absolutely. And, and I guess last question for you on Bitcoin before we wrap up is uh, the halving is coming up. And, and one of the concepts that um, I've, uh, I've spent a lot of time on recently, and, and uh, I wish that I remember who came up with this terminology, but uh, they said, look, if you anchor on in the legacy world, we're having quantitative easing, right? Kind of the uh, expansion of the balance sheets and, and this liquidity injected, we're about to get quantitative hardening. In, yep. the, in the Bitcoin world. Yep. Um, and, and so maybe some thoughts on uh, how that having should play out given the macro backdrop and kind of how you guys are thinking through that. Yeah, we had a big discussion about this at our brainstorm uh, last Friday. And uh, you would be very welcome. <laughs> Actually, <clears throat> your listeners are welcome in. You can, um, we do have life size, which is the system. I'm not sure how many we can handle, but we are getting quite a few people tuning in now. And uh, the, the concept was around, and what I loved about Yassine's uh, kind of presenting both sides, you know, he said, you know, I'm kind of, I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure which side I fall out on here. Um, my, I, I, I have a very simple approach, and Brett Winton, our director of research as well, weighed in, and, and we went back and forth on it. And I, I think just in a, a very simple way, from... Uh, given the backdrop, the economic backdrop that we have, when this having, and I don't know if you call it having or having, but uh, uh, when it takes place um, and, and uh, the rate of inflation is cut in half, uh, there are two things that, that will have happened. One, another very important software update in the ecosystem, uh, right? Uh, without forks uh, and, and just... Uh, at least that I know about, and um, two, um, the uh, you know no intervention despite what's going on in the rest of the world, where everyone's intervening to throw everything they can at a problem. No intervention. That twenty-one million is um, so. That will be uh, another uh, um, another proof of concept that this is going to happen no matter what is going on in the rest of the world. I mean, if there were developers so inclined, they could have said, look, you know, we can't, we can't do this in the face of what's going on. No, no, you must do it in the face of what's going on out there. This is the proof of concept. So from my point of view, it'll be a very positive event. Now, a lot of, I was in the camp for a while at, uh, as people were talking about uh, the having and and saying, okay, this is going to be a very bullish case, and the, and the price was lifting, and we got into the twelve thousand or wherever we got then. I was thinking, okay, this is going to, the, the, it's taking place now. Typically, the, you discount these things ahead of time, but with this, uh, um, you know, this eruption in in the market in the Bitcoin space as well, I I think on balance is going to be a positive event, and yeah. you know. It's what? It's the end of May, is it? Uh, like uh, May eleventh to thirteenth, somewhere in there. Okay, mid mid May. I think it should be a positive event. You know, right. I don't know why it wouldn't be. I I can't imagine a reason it wouldn't be unless unless the software, uh, you know, uh, uh, unless something goes wrong with the underlying technology, which I highly doubt. Yeah, part, part of what I think I'm personally looking at is um, you get all of the uh, QE, not just here in the US, but also, you know, Japan, uh, Japan trillion dollars, kind of a bunch of liquidity just being injected in the, in the global financial system. Uh, 
over time, people, just like we saw in 2008, 2009, assets sold off in 08 and that kind of liquidity trap. Uh, and then eventually people went for the inflation hedges, right? And through 09, 10, and 11, gold, obviously, uh, which had sold off 30% in 08, uh, ended up doing very nicely, hit a new all-time high. Uh, and if that happens again, right, which uh, structurally and kind of sequentially um, is likely to happen, I think, to some degree, uh, if it does, it's going to coincide right around the same time that you get that happen. Right. Yeah. And so to some degree would be like everyone looking for gold and half the gold miners in the world shutting off at the same time. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and seems bullish. But again, we kind of have to watch this play out and see, you know, does the having actually occur? Does the code execute, you know, and, and kind of does the macro uh, backdrop uh, execute as well? And we'll see. You know, having met some of the key or the core developers, I had the privilege of meeting a number of them. Uh, uh, last year, and I'm I I was so impressed, so impressed. I would be shocked if something went wrong with the software, and the resolve to hue to the 21 minutes, the cadence, uh, all of that. There, there, I I was as I said, my confidence in Bitcoin went up dramatically after I met them because you know before that I kind of thought, you know. These these are these are kids who have never seen any crisis and blah, blah, blah. that's not true. That's not true. There are some. I was able to have a solid economic discussion with a number of them. I mean, deep economic theory, in a way that I never imagined. And that's because there are gray hairs among. There are young, but then there are gray hairs. People very committed to this. So I was struck by that, and uh, my conviction in Bitcoin went up enormously after that. So, and I will say it's gone up. Um, I was a little like this hundred times leverage, what the heck? And, and, and seeing Bitcoin disconnect from gold itself, I was saying, okay, there's something wrong here. Uh, and, and that's when we had the brainstorm session. I mean, uh, we, Yasin had mentioned it, but the brainstorm session was about leverage and then the having, and you know, what would the net net be? Uh, so, um, I think you know where we come out on this. Absolutely. Well, listen, Kathy, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, people are really, really excited to kind of hear your thoughts on a whole bunch of this stuff. Uh, you guys have done a fantastic job, I think. Uh, not only one, um, kind of presenting all of the information and research, which people find valuable, but obviously, two, uh, as I like to say, the scoreboard, you know, kind of proves it for itself. You guys have done a great job there as well. So uh, just for everyone else, thank you for, uh, for doing this stuff. Where can people go find uh, either information or where would you like to send them? Uh, they want to learn more about ARC and, and kind of your process and uh, uh, reports. Yeah, so uh, arc-invest.com uh, is our research site. Awesome. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, we, we will definitely have to do this again. I, yeah. uh, I, I think that uh, people love to hear from you whenever you want to do it. So uh, thanks so much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a fantastic forum because you know what? You really like to uh, dive deeply into what we're doing. And that's the only way you can understand how profound some of the innovation platforms we're researching are. I mean, they're going to deliver exponential growth for years. And you, you are really doing your uh, viewer base an, an incredible service. Well, I'll, I'll leave you with one thought, which was I saw somebody tweeting saying, uh, tell Kathy to go on CNBC more. She can't let Chamath have all the fun. <laughs> so if uh, people will love the uh, the hot takes there as well, if you want to go do them. 
Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. I much prefer this form. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Take care. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.